Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carla Muzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. FOS is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Continuing the Conversation is one of the ways that we are trying to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we are having at FOS Church. In the biblical narrative, we often see God use the unexpected and unimportant to bring about change in this world. The story of Jesus, his birth, life, death, and resurrection is no different. Our new conversation, started from the bottom, is an exploration of the good news according to Matthew. Over the next few weeks, we will look at snapshots from the book of Matthew that exemplify the good news found in the story of Jesus. This week, we're exploring the women found in the Jesus... uh, This week, we're exploring the women found in Jesus' genealogy. What do these women have to say about how God works, and what lessons can we learn from looking at their lives in the context of Jesus' birth? So before we step into our formative questions of head, heart, and hands, since, Carl, you spoke on starting from the bottom now we're here this, this last week, did you have any lines you wanted to add or anything that's come to mind as you've been thinking about it? Um... Yeah, I think, uh, one, I just want to give a shout out to Drake for inspiring this whole thing. He's our homie, Canadian, you know. (laughs) Um, No, but but on the real, though, um, I think a few few points that came up in the conversation, actually, from when when we were having the conversation after this message that have really, really been sitting with me, that it's one of those things that I'm like, oh, I wish I thought of that. I wish I had actually included that in the message in and of itself. was one of the points that was brought up was perspective, right? So whose voice is it that's actually telling the women's stories? And so although I utilize the notion of powerless and things like that, and through the, like looking at these women's stories in unexpected places, but it wasn't the women's voices that were actually telling the narrative within the biblical text. And so when the person brought that up, asking that question, who's actually telling the story? Um, it was just a great question, I thought, and something I've been pondering this whole week. And then another point that was brought up was also was, leading from that space of like that idea of silence. So like these women, even though we're telling their story, they still remain silent somehow. Mm-hmm. And so how can we better honor those voices that, that are being silenced around us? And how, even in the biblical text, how can we honor those voices that are being silenced? So even though their narratives are being told, how do we, how do we begin to actually maybe do our best to try to dig in and find the remnants of their voice the best we can? Like those are some things that have really been sitting with me this week. Thanks. Um, as that's been sitting with you, especially with the notion of, um, for us, the, the idea of representation so that people get to share their own stories has always been really important. And particularly for you, you've always been hesitant to share stories that are not your own. So responding to this, um, how do you wrestle with the notion that for their stories to have been heard then actually had to come from the male voice? Um, Yet, what we would love to be able to do is to create a system that doesn't need a gatekeeper, doesn't need the structure to give them a pat on the back to say it's okay. So how do you sit in that tension? Yeah, well, I think like there are moments where people's voices have been taken away from them. And I think if we have the privilege to have a voice in the conversation, then we should use our voice to help them find theirs. Right. And so although these women's stories were told from a male perspective, especially based on the time period that they were told, when we look at them now in the 21st century, well, we're not saying that, well, men should just tell women's stories then, right? We're saying, well, these women's voices being found in this way actually empowered 
empower women now to find their voices in. And mm -hmm. so that, so when we look at this, we shouldn't say, well, I'm going to continue to tell their stories. I actually want to begin to ask the questions of whose voices am I not listening to? Who's being silenced? And not just can I tell their story for them, but how can I shut up or, and, and get other people to shut up long enough that their voice can find space in, in, in all the noise that's happening around us. No, that's interesting because it sounds like you're saying one of the key places to be able to give um, the women room to speak is to create a, um, a pregnant pause around it that doesn't rush to fill the void, that they have to have enough room to be able to contemplate and step in. Yeah, definitely. Like one one of the things that we like that we have learned around even facilitating group conversation is you actually have to let the awkward silence sit because it's only then are the, the people who are not going to speak, like the people who tend to sit in the background, they begin to fill the void. But, but a lot, sometimes it's just they they need a little bit longer to come to the to the to the you know to the table in a sense, um, or, or often other people just jump in so fast that other people's voices just get completely drowned out. Mm. And so when we create those pause moments, those moments of silence where we just let the awkwardness sit, it actually creates, as you said, a void. But but the voices that begin to fill that void aren't the ones that have been normalized. It's the ones that are actually coming in from the margin more often than not. Nice. Well, with that, uh, we're going to step into the head, heart, and the hands. Well, how, how about you, man? Any, any thoughts before we jump into those parts? What really hit me in this, in that telling of it, was that even in the sharing of the story, that notion that of um, Bathsheba, where it it only identified her by, as Uriah's wife, rather than her name, that one of the most vulnerable ones, one of the most um, like uh, violated ones for the ancient stories, in the retelling because it wasn't in a female voice, it was still in the male voice still got glossed over for the offense to the male lines, which kind of made me reflect in it to say, um, how often do I carry narratives forward because it re reflects something I would be offended by? Because naturally mm -hmm. in those, in patriarchal systems that have concepts of honor codes and family names that are so important, the more important thing is which family did you violate, not the actual victim of the violation and often in the same way to where I have in the back of my mind and almost um, the silent story that carries my life forward that creates meaning, there's certain types of offenses that I'll hear first, regardless of what it means for the victims who've been hurt. And it's, it's kind of had me in a reflective state to say, um, what stories am I carrying forward subconsciously mm. that um, can ignore the victim for the more public offense? Hmm, that's good, man. That's good. I think that's a, that's a great question. And especially as, as men in society, um, we have that image of like, you know, kind of like the macho man kind of, you know, uh, the macho man uh, image that, that kind of pops up. And so even often, quite often, like we're, the way we're taught to even think about um, women is while well, women, like we protect them because it actually has to do with our our honor, right? So, like, mm -hmm. if the people around me, something happens to them, well, it's a reflection on, it reflects poorly on me. Um, and, like, those are the narratives that we've been taught to bring forward um, growing up even. So, when you said that, it just caused me to, like, reflect even in the way that I, like, I grew up with two sisters mm -hmm. and, and the way that, you know, as a protective older brother, but quite often, like, yeah, like, like I'm, I'm, I stepped in in light of them, absolutely. 
but quite often it was also like you're not going to mess with our family and this our family name and so on and so on right like so it just even man, it's, yeah that's, I was like, that's I a know, great point judith butler um once said when she was talking about the notion of how are women constructed and um well she was speaking about america but western society she said in her studies of being able to name what is woman she found that women aren't just negative statements that you have to define the man because the man is the only one that can have a clear definition for the culture that the woman becomes what is lacking in the man so if the men are not caretaking women are caretakers if men are not nurturing women must then be nurturing and everything that just basically were the putty that rounded out the shape for the male identity mm. and it just yeah th those voices have been strong impacts because how many people even in that even in this narrative that we find to be a narrative of liberation in matthew one we find a place to where a woman's used like putty to round out a story. Yeah. So qu question for you, and this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, and I apologize, and we'll, we'll, come, <laughs> we'll come quickly back, um, is do you find it problematic that here it is, two men sitting talking about women and power dynamics? Yes. Um, I find it problematic for the sake of, um, well, the reason why we try to speak about representation, and um, I find it, actually, I'd say yes and no. Because right now, it's, it's not just us for the sake of we're excluding any voices. is we're, we're trying to find people to be able to come and sit with us in, in this conversation. So I would actually say it's not problematic, but unfortunate. And um, it will remain unfortunate until uh, either we find people who trust the space enough to add their voice, or we find a way to create that that pause moment that um, is actually inviting for the people because um, often I know I've experienced this when I saw myself as not part of the system that when they invited me to say something I knew I was their token representative um, it's been in class depending on which class it was was whether I was named as their token conservative or their token liberal um, and in both circumstances they would say oh well, what does this group think? And then they'd look to me. And I knew that wasn't a spot for me to say anything real. It was a spot for me to give them the token answers they wanted that validated their preconceived notions. Yeah. And I would say that that's the unfortunate aspect is we're hoping to be bigger than the stories that have brought about um, women as a negative statement, women as what fills the void of not man. Um, but until we can create that space to where uh, people say, I trusted enough to step into the conversation it, we're going to be at a um, unfortunate disadvantage until yeah. we can have that space with proper representation. Yeah, I, I like the word unfortunate there because it definitely isn't something that it's not intentional to dis like to disinclude mm -hmm. or not include people's voices. Um, but it's unfortunate that those voices, um, quite often, just because of the way the society has been, um, don't always trust that their voices can be heard in those moments yeah. and so as we create community it's not just not not just the women, like voices of women but voices of anybody who has been marginalized um within within our societal structures and so we definitely want to create representation we're not sorry not create representation we want to create space for representation um to be present so um just take a moment to just even give an invitation like if you're hearing this and and you feel like you want to speak into these kind of conversations we'd love to hear from you we'd love to be able to to talk with you and dialogue this with you and and hear what you have to say about it and we do acknowledge um 
it's always easiest for a system or someone who sees themselves as part of system to extend invitation because it's not the risk on that side. It's not a risk on our side. We understand ourselves. It's always the risk on the person trying to accept an invitation because they have to gamble that you mean what you say and try to come in unguarded as to not get wounded in the process of trusting. So we do want to recognize that tension of the offer given is never the riskiest part. It's an invitation and hospitality accepted that puts a person most at risk. Definitely. That's a great point. All right. So with that, why don't you lead us into uh, our formational learning questions, man? Um, So the way we try to break these down is our three levels of questions, head, heart, and hands, where the head question deals with something a little more conceptual, um, almost like the idea of theory so that we can restructure. The heart enters into a self-reflective place to where we try to bring theory or a changing of structure into our own lives. I would say, how has this resonated with our story? For the purpose of stepping to the hands question to where we can ask, how do we then live? How do we make this tangible? Because unless we can go from theory to tangible act, unless we can say um, a paradigm has shifted, so I'm going to try to build the community I hope to see, then most of this is pointless. Um, So today, for the head question, it's if the good news is told through these unexpected voices in Matthew 1, how does that affect the way we hear it? Well, why don't you just jump in and, 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 and kind of set off the answer, man? Uh, well, I know for myself, uh, when we talk about good news, um, that announcement that there's something more hopeful, but it's coming from those outside the system, it's affected me in forcing me to try to hear voices that don't immediately resonate with my own, because I don't know about uh, your own lives, but typically I found that it's it's uncomfortable to hear stories that don't sound like mine, that don't resonate with mine, that may even say that we've considered all the information and I landed a different point. But if the good news often comes within the biblical text from those who would say, yeah, the system didn't work for us, then I have to sit myself in the discomfort to be able to say that if I'm not listening, um, as one ethics scholar said, hearing the voices from the margins, He said, if the system doesn't have a way to hear the voice from the margins, then we're going to ignore a lot of human lives that can represent God. That's good, man. Um, I'm blanking on the actual wording of the passage for some reason right now, but from Luke chapter 4, when when, when Jesus quotes, like he's reading the passage from Isaiah, I've come to give good news. You know, to the poor, to the to liber, you know, to liberate the oppressed and 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 whatnot. I'm blanking on the actual wording right now, um, but I but I, I hear that text in the back of my head when we ask that question, and what that what that causes me to then say is that, like sometimes the things that I think are good news, if that's bad news to people who are marginalized, then I have to question the things I hold as good news, um, right? And so I think that's how it affects for me at least the way that I hear it is, you know, like, like liberation for, for the oppressed um, is definitely good news for, for, for the oppressed. Uh, but as one scholar, I think Willie Coleman said that like, it, it's, it's actually the, the, the oppressed and the oppressor that need to be liberated from the system of oppression. And so the good news is that the system of oppression is overthrown, not just that the oppressed you know, found space, right? Because then, it's, it's still a cycle that's gonna keep happening. 
And so it, it forces me to ask that deeper question of, okay, this is good news for, okay, this is good news for both. This is good news for all of us in a sense, versus this is just good news for me, or this is just good news for that person. Um, like good news has to be all encompassing in that sense. Like I'm not really one to throw out like absolutes and universals, but good news should be universal then. And it, it just brings out a point that if the good news is oppressive, um, then we, we have to allow that space of tension and it should be uncomfortable if you're the oppressor, but we can't just have that, like Carl's pointing to, we can't just trade power. It, it can't just turn into, well, um, I've been put to the side for a while. Now I get absolute authority. Now, if we don't rethink the system, if we don't kind of break apart and reconstruct what it means to, to belong, to be present, then all we can effectively change is who's at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, like somebody, like we, we shouldn't have a system where somebody has to draw the short straw, right? Exactly. And just because we have phones, which means we can always look up the biblical text and it flows well into your quote, is Luke 418 playing in the back of the mind of the women who said, here's the story of how the Messiah came. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives, the regaining of sight to the blind, and to set those who are oppressed free. Yeah. So it definitely points to, because um, often we like to hear those statements and we spiritualize them. And when we spiritualize them, we turn them all into almost magical thinking. So who are the oppressed? Who are the poor? And we make it this high mindedness of like, well, I'm the poor because. Well, one time I had a bad thought about myself when, especially if you're, if you're leaning into the story of Luke, he intentionally leans very hard to know the poor is the guy who can't eat. The oppressed is the one who's still in chains in jail. Um, he doesn't leave as much space for the abstraction to make it kind of ethereal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's good. That's good. Any, any other thoughts on that, on that question about how does it affect the way we hear it? Like where, no. where, like, where, like the person speaking and the voice speaking um, affecting the way that we hear it. Um, yeah, just because any time I can quote T.D. Jakes, it's a good day. <laughs> and he once said that if you only listen to the, to the stories you tell and the books you write, then your truth will be jaded. And I think that's the big push here for me. If the good news is only good news for people who look, sound, and act like me, if the good news are only is only resonant with people who would have the same academic um, traditions or theological traditions that I come from. Then maybe like T.D. Jake said, if I am only reading and listening to voices that sound and look just like me, I don't have the space for the marginalized and the non-represented like the text does that says good news came from the spot we did not see coming. No so doubt. it pushes me to try to Actually, for myself, because most things I do is about a curated reading list, um, it's pushed me once in a while to go through my reading list to look who's writing all the books and start saying, I need to include voices I'm not accustomed to. Definitely. And that can actually be a really jarring thought and question um, the first time you hear it. Like, I remember when I was in a seminary class and the professor gave us the book list for the class. And just an off the cuff mark, I thought like I was just being a smart aleck, you know what I mean, a smart ass. And the professor 
I looked at the book and I was like, man, wow, this is a great list of white males. And the professor just kind of stopped, jaw dropped, and he was like, I never even thought about who wrote the books. It was just never a question for him. It's like, this was a good book. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, you know, like we're, we're taught to kind of look at voices in that way. Like, oh, no, no, no. Like, it's not that we are underrepresented. It's just these happen to be the good ones. But reality is we're, I think we're trained to hear voices that sound like our own, like you said before. And that's going to reflect in the materials that we grab. Mm-hmm. And so for the professor, like he actually, like he said, it was a really kind of hard moment for him to actually hear that. So something that was meant as a joke, and I apologized. Um, that, but it actually hit him in a certain way because, like, like I apologize for being disruptive, not for for saying the comment. Um, but it, but he was actually like, no, no, don't apologize because I needed to hear that. Like there was no one else in this class that could have said that, and and it forced him to then the next time he taught the class, he's like, I included a voice from a woman, I included a voice from somebody from an ethnic. I'm like. That's kind of cool. It sounds like tokenism, but <laughs> you're trying, right? Like you're trying to to expand, and that and that was a cool moment of even like just kind of following up what you're saying. Uh, and that also shows um, we don't have to be combative when we share. Like this was just an off the cuff moment from experience. Um, it it wasn't grandstanding where he where Carl stood in the middle of class, raised his fist to the sky and say, "God cursed you for." He, he made an off-the-cuff comment, but if people are trying to have ears to hear, they can hear the truth behind something and say that maybe it is tokenism at first, maybe because um, you don't know who to grab if you're not reading from a tradition. Uh, when I first started getting into um, womanist, which is uh, pe- women of color writing about some of their experience, I had to grab a reader, which is a collection of writings that say, if you want to know this, you should know excerpts from these five people because I had no clue where to start. So anywhere I grabbed would have just been. That's a great point. If I can take in for mm-hmm. a sec, is like what, what just to kind of summarize a little bit what you're saying there is that you needed a guide to actually show you how to listen to those different voices, right? Because you did like if it's just people like voices coming at you, you don't know which ones to hold on to. And so by actually having a guide of somebody within the womanist tradition, could show you which womenist authors to read, and then allows you to actually have the freedom to become conversant within that tradition. Um, so I just thought that was a, that was a cool point. And I think like for a lot of us, um, like we don't know where to start. Um, we have no idea how to listen to new voices, um, like which ones are good, which ones are not good. Um, is good and bad even good qualifiers, right? Like um, that kind of stuff. And so who are the guides that we can look to um, just to begin to ask questions. And I think that's the other part of it is that we actually probably need to create the kind of spaces where it's safe for marginalized voices to speak, but it's also safe to say, I don't know, um, and, and, and to, to ask for help and to ask for someone to help guide us into new ways of hearing. And just because I've been critiqued um, on this account, it's also as we try to hear voices, let's remember not to then start um, making blanket statements, as I heard uh, one of my good friends say, because he was a historian who was also a gay man, I, um, I was in a conversation and we were talking about what's called queer theory, which is a branch of theology. And he turned to me and said, Glenn, I'm a historian. Why do you think I'd know about the wider readings of this? Because um, being a white cisgendered male, no one ever guesses what part of academia I was involved in. They would wait for me to fill that blank but his lack of representation, they assumed that the only thing he'd be interested in was a theology of his representation. And I heard the same thing of the womanist who had the reader. 
She said, I'm a black woman who is a historian. She said, I just so happened to write a reader on womanist writings. She said, because I found that no one had one and I was trying to teach a history class. She said, but she said she wrestled with it because now everyone refers to her as a womanist theologian. She said, I'm not, I'm a historian. I like stories of every people. And that's what we can do as we're hearing new voices. We might, unfortunately, um, ignorantly, honestly, start assuming any person that could fit that representation now must speak for that voice. Yes, I've had that happen many times. Carl, you're black, what do you think? <laughs> Weird, I've never had that one. No one's ever said, you're white, what do you think? <laughs> That's because you don't stop to ask. Wait to be asked. <laughs> okay, so, wow. Getting to the heart question, which is that reflective moment. Who are the unexpected and powerless in your world? And in what ways could the story of Jesus find a voice through them? Mm. I want to say good question, but I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we believe in being able to honor your own work. So congratulate yourself. That's fine. Yeah. Um, well, in the last while, for me, um, I've really been... Was, uh, Burdened is maybe too strong of a word, but I've been I've been really trying to listen to like the voices that that are, that are indigenous um, around me, right? Because I feel like being you know growing growing up in Vancouver, um, even though I'm multi-ethnic, um, I still grew up in, in in a system of of white power, right? And a system that marginalized anything that that kind of threatened that voice. And I think even in Vancouver, eventually. You, you, we, it's, it's fairly multi-ethnic as far as like lots of different people coming, coming and going and, and, and we're growing in that sense. But at the same time, like, I think the one voice that, that is continually overlooked within the conversations around here, and it's starting to be heard a lot more, is the indigenous voice. And I've been really blessed um, to have some different people that I, I would consider guides to begin to help me enter into those conversations in ways that are honoring and the way like like not just asking stupid questions you, you know you know what i mean and like i know i know like um a friend of our community that 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 you know shared poetry that helped our community walk into it or other people um who are part of our community that share their own experience and and i think there's just such a blessing for us to learn how to hear one of the voices i think that have been most marginalized especially in the in the area that we're at right now um and just as a clarifying question when you say raised in an area that is predominantly white power. Are you relating that towards, as we'd understand, like um, the Klan um, nationalism? No, kind I'm, of white I'm, I'm talking about white supremacy just, as, a, as a system that oppresses those, that it, or decentralizes those that are not white. And so it mm. creates a societal system that privileges white people, white culture, um, people of, like, it's, it's Euro, Eurocentric hegemony in that sense just to throw out some other big words that need to so, be explained. Uh, if I'm, if <laughs> I can say what, what I heard, just in case everyone was gonna say what they heard at this moment, is that um, the experience of the assumed good Canadian identity is usually a, a, a white person and typically a white male. So the, that assumption actually bears weight in our own relationship because as, as we go around and do things, um, I've said before, I'm the American but because I'm white, they'll usually turn to Carl and say, oh, what part of the States are you from? 
because they hear one of us is from the States. And it's it just the assumption that when we assume that there's a given image to a land of immigrants and that only one immigrant is the natural one, um, it can cause us to have systems that erase. Yeah, or even when people make, to me, really dumb statements around immigration policy and things like that, and they're like, oh, kick immigrants out of the country. It's like, but you were an immigrant. Like, literally, you were an immigrant. Well, my favorite in those moments is I'm in the middle of doing immigration paperwork, so I am 100% an immigrant. I can't even say a landed immigrant or a permanent resident. I'm in the process of immigration. So when they say it, I was like, oh, wait, you don't want me to live here? And then their mouth drops open. Like, well, not, not you kind of immigrants. Like, oh. Yeah. And so that's a great example of when I say white power or white supremacy, like that's what I'm talking about. The systems that say white is normal and it doesn't need an explanation to be present. Yeah. I just wanted you to unpack that a little bit because when we hear white supremacy, often what we can do, and I know what I've done, is you hear that and then you go to an extreme of it. So am I a KKK member with a swastika tattooed on my leg? No, nah, then I must be good. It, but it doesn't exist in the extremes. Most of us would blanch and be a little bit embarrassed of the extremes. But it still exists in very subtle ways that say, this is what normal looks like. And weirdest thing, normal just happens to look like me all the time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, but I would ask with that, um, how has leaning into some of the indigenous voices saying, here's been my experience, here's the Jesus I've come to know, expanded um, the Jesus you've known? Yeah, I, well, I think one um, way that it has expanded is actually given me a deep appreciation um, for seeing like God present in the stillness of creation all around us. Um, like there's one, one uh, indigenous theologian, Ra Randy, Randy Woodley, um, and, and he, he just he was talking about um, when, in hearing him speak, he, he was just talking about um, like the first like, like what, what, what Euro sent, like what European settlers called like animism, um, like like the, the reverence for creation. And all of a sudden, like instead of instead of treating creation as something that was created by the divine or, or, or can 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 inspire us to the divine in a sense, um, they just saw that like they, they saw indigenous people and say, well, no, that must be pagan. And so anything that had to do with, like that didn't come from a, you know, kind of an enlightenment way of seeing um, religion um, was, was deemed to be kind of pagan or, or, or other. And I think leaning into indigenous voices where it's really helped me was like, like I, unfortunately I grew up in the mix of that. Like I grew up hearing from, from different people speaking like, well, you know, like that, that, that the native drum well, no, you can't. You can't hear that. I'm like, but you're playing a drum in a church. What's what's the difference? You know, you know, you know what I mean. And creating these really weird categories that were really based on Eurocentric um, behaviors, right? And so, like, the thing that seemed normal to me because that, well, that's how I was raised, kind of idea versus understanding it and really being able to see um, the beauty of another culture, also using like utilizing utilizing the things around them as acts of worship in the same way that, that Europe utilizes the things around them as acts of worship. It just happens to be different things around them. And so like whether it was, whether here in, in BC or even in Hawaii with the, the indigenous Hawaiian population and really hearing the way that they speak about God and like, you know, like even like the language of aloha and, and things like that, you know, you know what I mean? Were, were things that really spoke to me 
about how we, un- we come to understand God. Beautiful. Uh, I know for myself, stepping into this, um, because I represent a lot of um, the academic traditions uh, coming forward that are taught um, in North America, because being white and male, I see myself on the back of a lot of books. Um, what this has done for me, it's, it's allowed something to critique the positive progressivism that I was raised to associate to um, especially American history, is that um, Christianity came to the shores and coming to the shores, we may have done some bad things, but with the best of all possible intentions. So kind of manifest destiny type stuff. Absolutely. And um, everyone is better for the fact that we did come do these atrocious things, but we introduced them to a better way to live. Uh, until a friend of mine, who's kind of like an older sister in high school, when I went back a few years ago, and we were talking because she knew I was in seminary, and she, she all of a sudden looked at me, she goes, you know, the only thing you guys brought to us was the Bible and a gun. It's like, so um, we have no place for the violence of your God. Yeah. And it was in that moment because... Um, my community uh, that I was raised in was, fa- was settled by um, the movement West in which they took the tribal lands of about, there were six bands in that area, and the ones that were not killed were shoved onto small properties, and they didn't care if they were um, factions of warring tribes. They just said, well, you all tan about the same, so it's good enough. Um, and they lost their history, they lost their uh, mother tongue, they, they lost their traditions. And so when she told me that, it made me realize um, in hearing Jesus in the voice of the unexpected and the powerless, that it showed me that it, it stops us from the foolish arrogance to think that things have become settled and fixed and good, that you can still have places for the gospel to come forward and say, did you not know that you're keeping the cross full because you kept my ancestors on it. Mm, that's good. Um, just something like, like, like kind of go, taking to the, like the first part of what you were talking about, um, kind of the arrival at the shores type thing. And I, and I've heard this phrase come from different traditions, so I don't know where it actually originates. Um, but it was like when, when, uh, missionaries came, like white missionaries came to our shores, um, they had the Bibles and we had the land. They told us to close our eyes and pray. And when we opened them, we had the Bibles and they had our land. <laughs> Right. And it's one of those things that is, is just staunchly stuck with me because I think that's been a lot of the power dynamics. It's like, hey, it's a good trade off. Right. Like, like, yeah, OK, we kind of killed you guys. We kind of did this. We kind of did that. Um, but you guys got Jesus. Like, <laughs> right. And, and which then also creates a really poisonous and, and a poisonous caricature of who Jesus is. Right. Because, like, again, like taking the, the God of the oppressed and then turning them into the oppressor. You know what I mean? And, and so it's, it's, even in that, like when, when we're unable to hear those voices of the powerless, um, it creates a false version of who God is. I'd say for our own reflectiveness, um, I'd say it also shows how we modify the image of God because um, coming from the American traditions, we had the Cotton Patch Bible, which they took out the story of Exodus because they thought a slave group having to read the Christian scriptures with a story about how God shows up for the slave to free them from the whip would not do, bode well for the economic system because then they might realize 
God, I'm not so cool with this. Um, but you had to intentionally shape that because they could recognize in there the, hypocr- the hypocrisy, the absurdity. Um, in us being able to hear these stories, it continually unsettles and it allows us to see that um, the systems around us aren't perfect. And if they're not perfect, like everyone would recognize that, the voices that could tell us where it could be better will not be from those who are already in charge. For sure. All right, man. Um, any other thoughts on this question before we move on? No, sir. All right. Um, so the last question is our hands question. And the question is, how do we position ourselves to listen to these unexpected voices in our midst? And I think like, you know, like for me, the hands question is always, um, the most important question that we're asking because it's like where the rubber meets the road It's where things become concrete in a sense. Um, and, 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 and actually become tangible for us, right? The rest of the stuff is like, we can, we can theorize about it all day long, but if we're not willing to begin to ask the questions of how do we actually live this out, um, then it becomes, it becomes irrelevant. Well, and it usually, if we don't have the uh, tangible uh, element, it enables us to pat ourselves on the back and say we're good without doing the work that could create the better for the world. Absolutely. Well, uh, well like I think kind of bringing us a little bit more for, full circle, like to answer that question, um, like when we talked about at the beginning about representation, um, I think like how do we position ourselves to listen to the unexpected voices in our midst? Um, like going back to that first thought that we had, it was actually creating those moments of intentional, like intentional silence in order to allow the, the voices at the margins to, to, to be able to move towards the center. Um, and I think like, 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 so like, I think a practice, like it's almost like a contemplative practice uh, of, of learning to listen versus, and versus um, always being so quick to speak, right? Like mm-hmm. when we hear these questions, can we pause long enough to let somebody else answer or do we have to be the eager kid with the hands getting, being raised right away? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, and that being said, uh, the eager one always ready to speak. When you already have the absolute answer, um, there's little room for a voice that's not yours. And I'd say uh, in this, that pause, we have to also enter into the conversation afterwards as somebody who is in the conversation, not presiding over the conversation. So when we step in, we don't get to correct back to and say, well, that's well and good. I'm glad you said that. But here's five points where you're wrong according to the way I read it. Um, Because we have to be able to sit in the person's story and actually explore what did they experience? How did they find? Where did they see Jesus? Where did they experience pain from those who said they already knew Jesus? Yeah. So with that, what what do you do, though, when somebody is holding on to something that is actually... To use, I use the language of poisonous. Mm-hmm. You know, something they're holding on to a perspective that's actually not, um, it's not a healthy one, and it's not. And, and, and well, it is based on your opinion of whether it's healthy or unhealthy. Um, <laughs> but it, but it actually is doing damage to them. You can see, you can visibly see, like, oh man, this is harming you versus helping you. This is um, hurting you versus healing you. I would actually, where I sit in those, because this is always the hard part for these kind of questions. If we're not supposed to sit over people, but with people, but then it comes to these points of um, influence and presence, like, do we then just throw our hands in the air and say, well, whatever happens, happens, who cares? I don't have control of anybody. Um, 
Or do we now just more politely become overlord and say, well, I'm going to have really, you know, soft hands as I shove you into the box you have to be in. Like it, it can create a weird polarization effect. Um, the way that I've tried to sit in this, and I'd actually say the way we've tried to um, construct the community that we call FOS, is by creating the space for multiple voices, but the only thing we try to correct, because there are moments you need to correct, is what Carl said, when you can see tangible harm, not the magic ethereal harm, not the, well, if you believe this, then I'm sure there's a punitive system ready to har to uh, bring justice to you, but the tangible ones. When we can point to communities that are overwhelmingly depressed, abused, and with mental health issues because of the way things have been held over them, when we've seen some people who, because of the way they hold on to a certain belief, um, have an inability to be able to deal with the complexities of the text that we inherited as part of our tradition, which, let's face it, it, it was written over a thousand years. There's a few different versions of it. Um, it's not a simple thing that we can just say it's just let's read it and it's plain. Like there are, there are ways and lenses and methods that we step into. So I'd say that part is we only step into where we see that tangible harm while hold the space to have a passionate conversation. And then the other part, because this is also where I found trouble, is when there is tension or things rising up, make sure we're fighting about the same question. Because often the question we're fighting about isn't the one that was stated. So when we say, the, well, here's a part of the Bible that could mean this, and someone gets upset, what they're upset about at times is they said, I thought I could trust it. And to trust it means everything was perfect. And if it was perfect, nothing could be wrong. If nothing could be wrong, and it goes down that road. But where it gets brought up is when someone says, here's a second reading. Well, most of us, we, we don't have that much pause in our experience to say, oh, wait, I see the narrative that brought me here and why I'm at angst with this. We have a reaction unless someone can help us pause. So those are the two that I would hold as we help each other pause to realize what question am I really upset about? Like, what is this saying about my world? And the other is if we're going to correct, we correct tangible this world harm that can be measured, can be quantified, can be seen. That's, that's great, man. That's, that's, that's a great answer. Um, I think, like, in the mix of it, I, I've just seen, especially coming from, a, like, a pastoral perspective, mm -hmm. I have seen people's belief systems become corrosive elements to their lives, where something that should be beautiful and life-giving and healing and healthy um, slowly eat away at them and erode, and, 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 then, it, and then when that happens, it, it erodes any sense of foundation that they had or things that they could trust and then they become like they become. I, I use the metaphor uh, of like a plastic bag in the wind. You, 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 mm -hmm. know, you know what I mean. And I think the way that as 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 a community, and not this is not as as leaders over the community, but as a community, we 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 offer people like that string. So instead of being a paper bag, a plastic bag in the wind, they become a kite. And so there's tension and there's things that that, that they're going to pull against. But ultimately, it's helping them soar, not just be blown any which direction in that in that sense. And I think. We have to help each other become un, un, untethered at times, but but then at the same time the community becomes our tether, right? In in, in that mix, and, and and so that's why like that correction of harm 
especially correction when it, when it begins to damage relationships and things like that, is so important because our community is the, I think, is the number one way that we're going to experience God present with us is through, is through our community, is through the church. And so if we're not able to, to, to step into each other's space from a loving place, not a coercive place, we're, we're always going to, we're, you know, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not, we're not going to have that, that tether, if that makes sense. Oh, it does, and I'd say um, that actually uh, triggers to mind the notion of if you're a leader in a community, the responsibility comes because most of the time, and at least I can say from my experience, the things that I've seen that became abusive in practice were done with the greatest of intentions for kindness. One of the churches I worked in, um, it was very much volunteer-driven. Now, in, if you talk to the leaders, all of them would say, no, take care of the important things in your life, your family, your job, make sure you have stability in long term. But once it got about three, four levels down, it became a mandatory directive that then became an indicator of if you loved people or if you had faith um, was measured by how many ministries you volunteered with. And so as leaders, we, once you get a couple steps removed, your good intentions can sometimes turn into chains that drown people. So we have to be very cautious in this as part of the hands point. When we speak, we make sure to name our lens. We, we make sure to say, here's how I'm approaching it, because it, we could be approaching the text from a, a historical position. And there's good historical questions that we can talk about. We could be approaching the text from a reader response, like, here's how God spoke to me through the text. And that allows us to let people know that what we're sharing is a responsive element. So it shouldn't be your master narrative. It, sh it shouldn't subordinate you. It's something to be in conversation with. And when we bring up other lenses, it's not about competing lenses, but saying these different voices give a richer meaning. But if you're a leader, and we don't do that more openly, if we know we do that in our study, but we don't say it in front of people, they might assume that the exact way we hold it controls everything. That's a great point, man. Well, with that, man, just uh, based on time, we should probably bring it to a close. Do you wanna maybe just give us a, a quick summary of what we went over today? Of course. So as we'd like to do to try to summarize, um, where these conversations uh, started and ended, because once in a while we rabbit trail. Like, the first question of, if the good news is told through the unexpected voices, how does it affect the way we hear it? We realize that it affects how we listen and how we position ourselves, because we must intentionally step into other people's stories and engage conversations that don't sound like us, so those unexpected voices, the ones that don't represent what, what we would say is normal, could shock us with their ability to show us who God is. So in naming the unexpected and the powerless in our world, in what ways could the story of Jesus find a voice through them? We found that it finds a voice through them as it shakes our assumed world. That as the voice of Jesus comes in, um, might say iconoclastically, uh, it breaks the, the systems and the signs we have around us so that we can intentionally rebuild, hopefully not harming those who've been harmed before. And coming into the hands, how do we position ourselves to listen to these unexpected voices in our midst? We found we position ourselves by being less concerned with having control over the community 
and more present within the stories of the community. We're not gatekeepers. We're not the last word, but we will correct each other as we see harm, tangible, measurable, quantitative harm come into people's lives. And in this way, we hold a little bit of tension together as we learn to write a new story. That's great. Thanks. And so with that, um, thanks for, for, for being here with us. Thanks for taking the time to listen. And we always just want to invite you to, 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 to journey with us as a community. And you can find all sorts of different ways to connect with us at www.fos.church. That's www.fos.church. And one of the main ways that you can connect with us is on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. And the links are all on the website. So definitely um, look forward to connect. Look forward to connecting more. Bless.